If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a copy, there should be one in the pew in front of you. You can turn to Colossians chapter 2. It's also page 984. 984. Colossians chapter 2. The verse is at the top of your notes that we'll be thinking through today and working out of its integrity, out of its resources, out of its meaning. That Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We've had Christmas and New Year's is upon us. This is a week that if you're in business, half the businesses think about shutting down because nothing happens all week. At the church here, we're looking at carpet, and we're getting more carpet samples for the fellowship hall, and we were told, look, you can order them, but just so you know, nothing's going to happen during the holidays. Yes, we know, nothing's going to happen. But I believe that leverages for us an opportunity. It leverages for us an opportunity to step back from our lives as we bring to a close one year, as we step into the beginning of another, it becomes the opportunity to assess and say, what in the world are we doing? What are we living our lives for? What are the long directions that we're aiming at? We're not going to talk necessarily so much about specific steps today, though we will we'll bring some of that up. But the main goal is to say this is an opportunity to step back and take stock of where we are in our lives. What are the big forces at play in our lives? I love a book title that came out a few years ago from a Christian minister, and he said this, Don't Waste Your Life. That was the title of the book. Don't Waste Your Life. And I think that that's something that we can bring up at a New Year's time, in a New Year's week, after Christmas has come and reminded us of something that God has intruded into our lives, and then we can step back as we face this week of slowed down processes and say, What is my life aiming at? What is my life aiming at? And I'd like to talk to you today about Jesus and the powers. Jesus and the powers. I'm going to make a couple of points here that I want to just kind of lay the framework and the groundwork for. And then I want to move into what is taking place, I think, in our lives today. And, and what God may direct us in that regard. So let me say a couple of things first. This. Who are the powers? So the scripture paints for us a picture of reality that is more than the things you and I are seeing right now. You're sitting on chairs, you're wearing clothes, there are lights illuminating through, there are clouds outside, right? There's no sunshine. But uh, there's no rain either, I don't think. But there's more than this life than the things that we see. There are unseen realities, there are invisible beings who have existence every bit as much as you and I do. They were also created by God. And I want to talk about their role in the guiding and the shaping of our lives, the influence they take upon us. Now, I know when we begin to talk about this, what develops in our head immediately is the most frightful scenarios of, of possession by demons or, or a house that is haunted or a poltergeist or a ghost or or some manifestation of a demonic entity assaulting a human people or person. That's not so much what I want to talk about this morning, although, although it's connected to that. I think while that is true, it is not all that the Scripture has to say about the spiritual forces and the spiritual beings that God has created in the universe. I believe there are other aspects. 
And so the first thing I want to say, who are the powers, is first, they are created, unnamed spiritual forces. Created, unnamed spiritual forces. I say unnamed, grappling for the right word, because they, we know entities like Gabriel and Michael and Lucifer and Beelzebub. We know names of spiritual forces, angelic forces. But there are other forces that the Scripture uses words for that are not individual names given to them, but large designations like rulers and authorities and powers and principalities and names. In fact, one of the most unique verses, I think, is it says, Jesus has been given a name above every, not names, that's another verse. This verse says, above every name that is being named. And this is in the context of spiritual powers. Above every name that is being named, there is something about a name that is an exercise of power in the earth, in the universe. And these forces are created by God as unnamed spiritual forces. I believe they were also given to man. They were for the exercising of our dominion and of bringing the earth to fruition and development and growth to the glory of God. But the second thing is this. We know that there was a fall. We know that Adam and Eve diverted their path and disobeyed. We know that there was a fall and there's some kind of a war in heaven so that who are the powers? They were also, there are fallen spiritual forces. Fallen spiritual forces. There are created powers that were meant to be given into service to man to develop the world and to develop creation, but they have rebelled against God They sought to seduce mankind and turn him into rebellion, and they succeeded. And these are fallen powers that are now intent on working death and destruction in the world. Death and destruction. We have some names for some of them, such as Lucifer or Satan and Beelzebub, but we have other large phrases such as spiritual forces in heavenly places or the powers of darkness or the powers of the air. We have these general words that describe simply evil forces that exist but are invisible to our eyes. And then finally we have, who are the powers? We have cursed spiritual forces. I want to suggest that not all of the powers that God created, the angelic beings, not all of them are fallen. In fact, the scriptures indicate that only a portion of them rebelled against God. But what the scriptures also reveal That when man, Adam and Eve, succumbed to the temptation of the evil one in the beginning, all of creation was subjected to futility, it says, to a curse. Not only had God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, and death came to Adam and Eve, but death came to the entire creation. So that the book of Romans actually says that all of creation is longing desperately for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God, that they might be freed from their subjection to futility, which indicates that they might serve the purposes for which they were created. And so I don't believe that all the powers are fallen. I don't believe the scriptures indicate that. I believe that some of them are, however, under a curse. In fact, all of creation is under a curse until that last day. Now, I think we have to place ourselves 
in the, in, the, in, the, in the footsteps, in the shoes of Elisha's servant. Do you remember that Old Testament story? We know that the New Testament, we know that the Apostle Paul writes much about these powers. And, and he, it says, went into heaven itself and he saw things that he cannot even tell us. He was aware of another reality. But, but the best picture painted for us is in the Old Testament where Elisha and his servant are there. And they are surrounded by the Assyrian army. And it's a devastating, fearful encounter. And the heart is sunk of Elisha's servant. And Elisha prays to God and says, God, would you open his eyes? And it says that he looked up and on the mountains surrounding the Assyrian army were a host of angels. And the intention of God was to say this, look, you don't need to be as afraid as you are. Because there is an entire world that is not seen by your eyes that exists. There is an entire army that is not seen. And when you and I come to face the big forces of our lives, we have to recognize that we are dealing with not just the things we see in life, but there is an entire spiritual realm of existence that is as real as you sitting in this pew this morning. It's as real as that. So who are the powers? They are unnamed forces given to man. They have rebelled and they are fallen and they rule over man so that the devil is actually called the the God of this world. And they have taken charge over and corrupted the, the rest of the angelic forces so that they are working out of disruption. They are working contrary to their purposes, much like the earth that bears Uh, weeds and it bears thistles and thorns. It doesn't work the way it was supposed to work. So in the spiritual realm, there is a curse. It doesn't work the way it was supposed to work. But what are the powers seeking? And we're going to do three things here, three points, and then we'll get to the heartbeat, number four there. But second is, what are the powers seeking? Well, simply this. They are seeking fear and dominion. They're seeking fear and dominion to exercise over mankind. There is a verse in Scripture in which Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, God has not given to you a spirit of fear. And he goes on to say, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But let's go back. He's not given you a spirit of fear. So there's such a thing as a spirit of fear. In our culture today, we think of fear as an emotion, And yet the scriptures say it is more than an emotion. Fear certainly is connected to human emotions. But the scriptures indicate that it's also connected to the unseen world. The world that is invisible. That there are spirits and there is such a thing as a spirit of fear. And so spirits are seeking to make fear and dominion. They are also seeking to bring about death and destruction. It is their intention to kill everything, to destroy the works of God, to destroy slowly and mercilessly. The description of the devil is that he would steal, kill, and destroy. It is the intention of these spirits to bring about death, so much so that it says in Scripture that there is such a thing called the power of death. And then it talks about the devil having been given the power of death. And so somehow, in this fallenness, in man saying these spirits who were to be at our service to build the world and the creation for the glory of God, when we succumbed 
and rebelled, that these spirits rose up over against mankind and seek to bring about and have been given the authority and the power to bring about the very death that God warned of Adam and Eve. And so what are the spirits seeking? They are speaking fear and dominion in your lives. And they are speaking bondage and death. Death and destruction to bring in your life. Let me do the third thing here, this. When will the spirits be overcome? And then we're going to get into some specifics. When will the spirits be overcome? It's important for us to know that. It's important for us to put it in before we step into some of the difficulties that I want to talk about. Because what I don't want to do, I'm going to speak negatively about some things that I think are taking place in our world as we move into 2015. But I don't want to create a sense of a soapbox of self-righteous condemnation or condescension of things that we do in our lives. Instead, what I want to say and recognize is that while there are powers in the world and there are forces that are powerful, they are also under the authority of Jesus. And they have actually been overcome. When will they be overcome? First, they already have at the cross. First, they already have been overcome at the cross. And this is our verse that's in front of us here. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What I keep seeing in those words is a public spectacle. It's so hard for us to believe this because we didn't get to see that public spectacle. When we live life, we live with these eyes. It's a part of the death in our world that we only see the things that are physically in front of us. But what God is saying is that in the realm that you cannot see, there was a spectacle made of these powers that Jesus triumphed over them at the cross. And ever since then, their defeat has been certain. It has been in, written in stone, so to speak. But it's not just already at the cross, but there's also, when will they be overcome? Now, through the church. They'll, become over, they'll be overcome now through the church. There's a very interesting verse there in Ephesians that talks about that in the church, God has displayed in the church His wisdom and glory for all the rulers and authorities to see. He's displayed in the church His wisdom and glory in a sense that He might taunt them. That's what I think is being, He might parade in front of them the victory and the loss of power that they have realized in their existence because He steps into your life and He restores you to the place of restoration and a, a new creation. The old creation had been lost. Its authority was lost. You were now subject in bondage all your days, says the book of Hebrews, to fear and the fear of death. But now you have been delivered. Now you have been given joy. Now you have been entered into what's called a resurrection. And you've been brought back to life. Now you know how to forgive. Now you're no longer so self-centered like you were before. Now you're no longer a thief or a liar. And you are on display, in public display, in the realm that is invisible. So that right now, God is at work in the church to show the powers and the rulers who have the audacity to say, I will rule the world like God. And he says, no, look at these people. I have rescued them. And they will soon and someday even be your judges. They will even stand over you in trial. When will the powers be overcome? They have been at the cross 
They are now through the church being overcome, but there is also a completeness that is later at the consummation. There is a completeness of the victory of Jesus in which they will be completely overcome. Now, there's a couple different verses that seem to speak different things, and I'll just put them out there just to indicate how uh, challenging it is to put this puzzle together. But one verse says that at the end, there is going to be the destruction of the powers. Jesus is going to destroy them all. And then there's another verse that says he's going to reconcile them all at the last day. So I'm not exactly sure how to put those together, but the idea is this. At the last day, what was begun at the cross, what had been manifesting itself through the church now, will be brought to completion completely for all eternity. And so the powers that have been distorted and taken out of the rightful place will now then be put back. They will be put back to serve the development of the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so who are the powers? What are they seeking? And when will they be overcome? It's important to know these things because now I want to do the next thing. Where are the powers attacking us? This is really the heartbeat of what I want to talk about this morning. This is a New Year's service, a New Year's. We've had Christmas and and we're all a little deflated from the high energy output of Christmas season and we come here halfway tired and resting and we have a new year, but we're at the end of a year. And we have the beginning of a new year in front of us. What is it the things that God is calling us to? What are the things God is doing in your life? I think each of you have a responsibility to ask those questions and to utilize the seasons that God provides to do so. Now, they may not always be the New Year's. I personally, every time I fly somewhere on a plane, I love it because I don't know anybody there and I look out a window and I assess my life. I take that as an opportunity. You may have other times and seasons, but I believe this is one that's an opportunity for you to do so for your own life and the communities that you live in your church community and family, the city you live in here and the issues that you face here as a citizen of this city, and and even our nation at large. What are the forces that are at work in your spheres of influence and life? And those are all responsibilities. So what are, are the powers then? Where are they attacking us? That's a strong word. But if they're bent, if they are hell bent on destruction then there is an attack. Well, I want to say three things. I, I, I was nervous in the first service about jumping into them. I'm nervous this time because I'm going to talk some specifics now. And let me say something about that before I do so because I'm going to lay out three areas, I think, and I'm going to put them out there for your consideration because what I don't want to do is speak negatively about something in a way that says, well, He was just harping on this issue or telling us what to think in this issue. That's not what I want to do today. Out of the victory of Jesus, I want us to be able to assess well our lives. Let me give you an illustration, okay? An illustration. This is 2000, and we'll call it 2015, okay? 2015. 200 years ago was 1815. From where we stand today... If we look back at our brothers and sisters in the church 200 years ago, our nation of which we're citizens, we look back and look at the enslavement of African-American individuals with utter astonishment. 200 years ago, you and I, people in the church, people who are believers, declared that they had only three-fifths the value of other individuals. Three-fifths the value. In addition, it was legitimate 
if you owned another person. If you went, it didn't matter if they'd been taken from their life. You could go and purchase them. And as long as you were making money by them, this was a legitimate thing the way God had made this to be. That's what our nation and our churches believed and defended and breathed in that air. Now, we stand today with immense embarrassment, with immense clarity. That is not true. That is totally false. And we look with astonishment as if it is an issue of intellectual power alone that such a culture would ever believe such a thing. But I tell you this, in 200 years, another culture will look at us. And what will they say about us? This was not just the growth of knowledge. This was the work of the powers. This was the work of death and destruction, bondage and slavery and fear, working through the massive institutions of a nation, trickling down to its massive effects upon individual churches and lives. If we can see with such clarity, in hindsight, what was missed 200 years ago, what is it? Should we grapple and attempt to discern the things that may be distorted in our culture today? Is it worthwhile for us? Because in that day, the majority of individuals thought this was okay. It was lone individual voices, some in the church and some not, that were saying this is wrong. This is wrong. So powerful was the debate that we had in essence, a national war over it, among other issues. What are the powers? Where are they attacking us today? I want to bring up three things. This is by no means exhaustive. It's not even necessarily prioritized as the biggest or most important. They're just three that I think are worth mentioning as I've been thinking about this. Number one, you just got to step into it with both feet, don't you? Where are the powers attacking us? First, in the rule of entertainment media. I had the word hegemony instead of rule, and then I got three R words. Plus, I didn't want to get any comments on the connection cards about using words that nobody knows. Hegemony, though, is a great word. Hegemony is the ruling of one nation over another or of one social group having power and dominion over another social group. It's exactly the right word for what we're talking about here. That the powers, through the avenue of entertainment media, are seeking to have hegemony or rulership over our lives. Now, I want to give a few illustrations of this. And and I want to backpedal even a teeny bit. I, uh, do you know, let me say what I'm not talking about first. I'm not talking about watching shows with cursing. I'm not talking about nudity. I'm not talking about profane vulgarity. I'm assuming we agree that these are wrong. I'm just taking that whole category and setting it aside from it because all I'm going to talk about is the massive amount of entertainment we consume. If I asked you to write on a piece of paper really small so your neighbor couldn't see it, how many shows you watch? 
I assume some are going to be embarrassed by certain shows because of what's in them. I don't, I'm not even talking about that. Just how many? How many you follow? Did you know statistics? Estimate the conservative five hours a day. One study says 15. I think that's stretching it, but it's got a lot of documentation. Five hours a day is what we'll run with for this sermon illustration point. Five hours every day, on average, the American person watches television. I would like to suggest that that's a lot. I'd like to suggest that that's more than sufficient for the brief element of entertainment. What is entertainment for, anyway? It's something that is a gift of God. Storytelling having friends over, something to relieve you from a hard day of work, to refresh your spirit. I believe it's a gift of God. But I believe that we have taken this gift and massively put it out of proportion. Massively. I told the first service, this whole row is empty here. Because we think about, well, kids watch a lot of television. Two to 11-year-olds watch, on average, 24 hours of television a week. When they hit the teens, it declines just a little bit to 20. They were interested in other people. And then as it picks up in the early 20s, it goes up to 22. And from there on, from there on, brothers and sisters, middle-aged and older, it keeps going up. It keeps going up the older you get. Instead of utilizing your wisdom, instead of utilizing your experience... Instead of the passion you have begun to increasingly find in Jesus to go and serve the world, we actually watch more television the older we get. So that at age 35 to 49, it is 33 hours a week. And at 65 plus, it is 49 hours a week or 7 hours a day. Now, what I don't want to do is be told... Or accused. It's going to happen, and I meant to write down on a piece of paper how many I think might happen. I don't want anybody to think I'm speaking against television because I'm not. I don't think it's wrong to watch television. But I think we have become distorted in what is sufficient for rest and recreation and entertainment. It's become massive. We no longer watch shows, we just have the television on. This last Christmas, a couple days ago, Our family, we didn't turn the TV on all day. Well, we had music playing, but that doesn't count. We didn't turn the TV on all day. You know what? That was a little bit intentional. I went over to turn the TV on at least three or four times. And I asked myself, wait a minute, what are you doing? Why do you you want to turn the TV on? I don't know. (laughs) It just would feel more comfortable if it was on. I found myself wanting to turn the TV on for no reason at all. Just because it was a part of life. It's no longer watching a show, but simply being occupied. We would call it mindless vegetation. And I believe there's something in that that we're seeking to fulfill and satisfy and comfort ourselves with. I'm going to give an illustration, and then I want to say why I don't want to give too many illustrations. I want to give an illustration because, just think with me for just a second of the irony. We, We watch shows 
We call them, we watch reality shows. Just just pause, rewind it, and say it again. We watch television shows about other people's lives. I, 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 it, I watch television shows, so this is not a soapbox. This is not a condescension. I watch them, you watch them, as if we don't have our own lives, as if we don't have a lot of other people's lives that we're connected to. And they're not even real. But forget that for the moment. That's not even the point. We watch a massive amount of entertainment. A massive amount of entertainment. I want to suggest that this is the powers mindlessly numbing our souls. If I asked you, would you willing to consider quitting your drug use, only a few of you would write down, yes, and here's what drugs I want to stop this next year. The rest of you would say, I don't do drugs. I want to suggest that when there's something you can't go a day without consuming like this, and it has no nutritional value, or very little, it is like an addiction. It is something that is soothing your heart and soul to sleep. To where you are no longer awake to the things God may have for you as an individual. Celebrities. Celebrities are at an all-time high. I meant to, there's all these illustrations when you stand up and preach a sermon. That, oh man, I forgot to do that. Oh, I forgot to do that. I don't know how many magazines there are. I'm going to guess a dozen and see this next week if I can figure out if that's the true number. I bet you there's a dozen magazines given over just to the lives of celebrities. At the grocery store. You walk through the aisle, go there, they're right there. I bet there's a dozen. I bet there's a dozen. And they only exist because we buy them. They only exist because we have another fascination with the lives of rich and famous people because our hearts hunger for glory. I wish that were my life, we said, not recognizing that it is as difficult for them as it is for you and I. But we are absorbed with celebrity status. And if a celebrity says something, then it must be true. It must be true. I find this dynamic as a pastor who goes to conferences. This is in the church now as well. Because conferences are booked now based upon who is headlining the, con- the conference. Who is at a worship conference, a youth conference, a church growth conference, a minister's retreat. And what name is put up in the lights so that when you see it, you say, oh, they're going to be there. Well, I want to go and hear them then. And you see, God gave reputation as a good gift, but this is a distortion of that. It's a distortion. It's a worshiping, in a sense, of celebrity. Social media. Social media. The the television has been around for a while. The movie stars have been around. It doesn't matter if you're a Tom Cruise, a Brad Pitt, or a Clark Gable and Cary Grant. It has been, through the ages, said, if I say it, it has a meaning. But social media has just started. I want to say something negative about social media. But I don't believe everyone needs to cancel their Facebook accounts or their Instagram, or their Twitter accounts. That's not what I'm saying at all. Studies have shown, social studies have shown, that on average, people know about 300 people is what most people can know and relate to. 
and understand and acquaint themselves with. Which is why at a funeral of somebody who dies in midlife or, or a wedding, most weddings are about 300 people because that's about the sphere of connections. Occasional individuals are more and there's introverted, less connected people have less, but, but that's about what it is. They say even names and remembering names that 700 is about the max, 7750, that a, a person kind of geared towards remembering faces and names can see you and remember your name and face, about 700. But you and I have friends with Facebook friends, 1,500, 2,000 friends. And I tell you the truth, they're not your friends. <laughs> they're acquaintances. You've met them before. I want to suggest that our social media is designed to connect you massively, and yet it is creating more disconnectedness than before. More disconnected. Having a social media relationship is not a real relationship. Having a Facebook communication is not a real communication. It is a partial. It ha- I shouldn't say it's not real. It has realness, but it is partial. There is a reason. I, I recently... Not, I didn't make a vow. I made a determination. I was not going to communicate an email about things that were sensitive in nature because I found myself too often doing my very best to very compassionately, very understandingly, very sensitively put out a difficult situation in an email to somebody only to find that it blows up and I have five more emails and conversations until I have to finally go and talk to them face-to-face anyway. Because email doesn't carry voice tone. It doesn't carry looks of compassion or kindness or anger or frustration. It is absent all of these communicating markers. I want to suggest that these tools, that these connection capabilities are gifts from God, but that in the hands of the powers, because they are spread out massively across the globe, they are actually seeking to use them to bring death to your relationships. How many of you have argued over Facebook? I've seen some of your arguments over Facebook. You and I will say things on Facebook. We have to call our kids and ask, not anymore on Facebook, how do we delete that? Because I didn't mean to say that. We will say things that we would never say to a person in person. Why is that? It is an erosion and an increasing of disconnect by the very medium that claims to be a connecting medium. I want to suggest this is the powers at work. And that our calling is to assess these things and you to say, is this something working itself into my life that I need to withstand and resist and I need to create boundaries for? And your boundary is different than your boundary and my boundary is different than his boundary and her boundary. The boundaries can be different. But are we called to face into what is happening to us in our culture? One more illustration, because I was at somebody's home. I won't tell you that it was Pastor Scott's home. And I won't tell you that we were playing games with our families. And I won't tell you that him and I were playing another game on our phones while playing the other game with our families. And I won't tell you which of us, but I believe that one of us may have been playing a third game by themselves on their phone at the same time. That's not connection. That's increasing disconnection. That's not being present. That's a masquerading of presence. 
because of entertainment and media. Second thing, in the rise where the power is attacking us, in the rise of technology information. These are connected. They have similarities, but I believe they're different. I put them backwards like this. We think of them as information technology. That's what we see in businesses. And in that sense, information is a place of power. Information is a place that can be corrupted. Information has a good things. In fact, the scriptures say we're to grow in the knowledge of God. That's information. That's understanding. It also says that knowledge puffs up. So, there's something about knowledge that does well to be pursued, but there's something about knowledge and information that has a negative effect. So, which one is technology fueling? Is it fueling the growth in knowledge that is healthy, or is it tending to fuel a growth in knowledge that is unhealthy. And I'd like to suggest that while there are benefits and good things, and we need to affirm them, and we're pleased that we have them, at the same time, there are things to beware of. That the powers are seeking to destroy your life and bring about fear and dominion through the rise of technology information. Let me give a couple suggestions. One, omniscience. I believe that what technology and information is doing to us today is making us an offer. I will let you know everything if you would spend your time with me. Now, that sounds surprisingly like God, but before going there, I will let you know everything. You can get on the internet. I was trying to think, is there a question you can ask that you wouldn't find some kind of an answer for? Do you think there is such a question anymore? I'm sure there are somewhere, but that would be, Google that. You can go on Wikipedia and you can spend all day. You can go on Pinterest. You can spend all day only on the stuff you like. Nothing boring. You can trace to your heart's content. You have all done what we now call surfing. You just ride one wave after the other. Are you building knowledge? I don't think so. Are you gathering information? Yes. Statistics tell us that we are downloading 74 gigabytes a day into our homes via the internet. Per person. That's more than we can handle. It's more than we can process. And so not only is there the allure of omniscience, but I believe that there is also the production and cultivation of mindless thoughtlessness. Thoughtless knowledge. I'll give you a personal illustration. When I'm going to preach from a passage, if I want to understand a passage, you know what I have to do? I have to not go to the internet. I have to turn the computer off. Because what I have to do is I have to go to the scripture, the book, lay it down, and I have to start thinking about it. I have to ask it questions. I have to push on it. I have to go check another verse. Now, it's not so much that I have to use my brain power. I don't think that's actually the issue. What I think the real issue is, is I have to slow down. Information acquired too quickly gives no time for processing it. Is this good or bad? Is this helpful or unhelpful? What does it do for my life? And I would suggest that this is a temptation of technology information to give you a ton of facts. But what the Bible would say is, not grow an ounce in wisdom. Because there's no capacity to process the knowledge. There are actually now 
studies in information technology and technology use that show addictions beginning to surface. How many of you have touched your phones in the last 15 minutes at your pew? You just reached out. Listen to the words. This is so ironic. Comforting, isn't it? It's still there. You're not going to check your phone. You're not going to check your phone for the next 10 minutes. Studies have shown that we are developing addictive behaviors to our phones. We touch them on purpose. Studies have shown that we are checking them without any reason to check them. For example, they now have lights, right? It'll flash blue or green or whatever it is to tell you you have a notification that you have an email, a text, whatever the form is. You have your phone sitting up and you look at it and there's no blinking light and you go back to what you're doing and five minutes later you say, you look at it, let me just check anyway and turn the light on. Maybe there was a mistake. Maybe there is an email there. Maybe there is a text there. Maybe there is a missed phone call. As if we don't believe it, because there is something, and this is where we begin to realize there are spiritual dimensions involved. We desperately want to be reached out to. We desperately want somebody to talk to us and to value us. We desperately want somebody to send us something that says, I was thinking of you. Are you thinking of me? And it betrays our immense loneliness, I believe. It betrays the things that we are meant to get from God himself. And cell phones are starting to offer that false promise to us. They offer us that we will satisfy you. I will satisfy you. Have you had those disconcerting phantom rings or buzzes? Let's just think for a second what this is. You have your phone five feet away on a dresser drawer. And you feel it buzz against your leg. But it's not there. What is that? It is your body. It is your mind saying, I need to feel your presence because there may be somebody who wants to talk to me or send me information and I will create an experience that is not real just so you feel my presence. That is startling. I, I know you were laughing, and, and I, I, as you started to laugh, I thought, back off, Mike, because here's what I don't want to do. I'm not trying to make jokes. I'm actually not. To make a joke about this, I mean, there's humor in it, but I'm not trying to because it would undermine the intention of what I'm aiming at. I'm not trying to stand on a soapbox and preach against television watching or against cell phones, or against the Internet. That would undermine. I believe these are good gifts. I've set all the dirty stuff aside. I'm not even talking about it. I'm just talking about the way the powers move in the big things of our life and what they are offering and trying to exercise dominion over you. That it's a lot. And I think we need to be aware of it. The third one is this, in the right of entitlement, ease. I told the first service that this line, again, was going to have kids on it. Because the first thing we think about when we think of entitlement... Some of you delivered papers. You rode a bicycle or you walked. My grandmother is alive. She's 94 years old, and she walked to school. I know it wasn't uphill both ways, but it was really close. 
because sometimes there was snow on the ground. She didn't have a dishwasher. She didn't have a washing machine. She didn't have a vehicle. Closest thing you got was a horse you had to get up and feed and water and take care of way more than any car maintenance that you'll ever have. I believe that what has grown up in the prosperity of our technological culture is that we have come to feel entitled. Entitled to ease. Entitled to prosperity. Entitled to wealth. Entitled to glory. The one example, and I've got three of them, so I'm going to start with the one that we all feel, and, and you get accused of being a, an old fogey now, but of kids. They're enti- I don't want to work at McDonald's. I don't want to work or walk to school. I need a car in order to have a job. No, actually you don't. I am famous. In fact, we'll make fun of it, but somebody says, I'm so, famous. I'm so, I'm so famous you don't even know that I deserve to be famous. And we can all hear some young teen's voice talking about what they deserve. It isn't just young people, though. Entitlement, I think, is pervasive. I'll give you another illustration. One of the things that is difficult for me that I've had to work through here in our church location, people come in for financial assistance and they have an electric bill need or a water bill or something and they're talking about their bill and we're working through the process, working through what's going on in their life and then the phone rings and they bring out, it's a very nice phone and I know that that data plan is at least $50 to $60 a month. What makes a person say, I don't have enough money for electricity, but I have enough for a smartphone? I think that's entitlement. But it isn't just these, these pockets of our culture that we can look, in a sense, down on easily. But I believe that entitlement reaches into the church. I believe that the prosperity of our culture... The ease with which we live compared to past generations has created even for us as Christians in our Christian walk a sense of entitlement to ease. It's why you expect to not suffer. It's why you expect that when you have a trial in your life and it's over, you think, oh good, there won't be another one coming, hopefully for a long time. You kind of know it's not true, but your expectation is that you deserve ease and comfort. You deserve to have worked and then retired and not have to do anything. You deserve to have God continue to bless you. And I would suggest that while God has an intention to bless you, He also intentionally, as a good father, orchestrates difficult things for your life. Because you think, I suggest that we're drugged as it is. You think you're drugged now. If you had ease and comfort that you want you would not have any need for God whatsoever. That is the broken death and destruction in the human heart. God actually brings in dis-ease and discomfort in order to arouse you and to awaken you and to make you say, I need you, God, and call upon Him. So far is it from this entitlement of you that God actually works against what you want sometimes. I believe that these are the powers at work in our prosperous country to make us feel a sense of entitlement and eating. It's not just the young, it's not just the financially difficult, but it's the Christian. We see it in many ways. There is a reason. You go look at photos. 
Look at photos. Go to the black and white section of photos and start looking at our nation's history. We are the most overweight nation, overweight time in our nation's history ever. Why? Well, there's, maybe we don't walk to school as much. Could be exercise issues. But I'll tell you the frank bottom reason. We just eat way more than we ever have before. Why? Comfort. Feel good. Tastes good. We want to please ourselves. We have a right to have one more piece of dessert, even when it's the third one. A, a little funny, and yet it's not really that funny, is it? We are, you know, if you go and watch daytime television, which I'm talking against, if you go on and watch them, you'll see jokes about the most obese states in the nation. Who is battling to have the most obesity? Is it Georgia or Louisiana? Is it now Oregon? We're moving up the ranks. How awful that the great blessing and prosperity we have, we have sucked it into ourselves and said, just give me more. That's the deception of the powers. Okay, where are the powers attacking us? That's all I want to say about those things. I want to do two more points. I didn't realize what time it was. Let's do, let me just do a quick one and then we'll do the last one here. Why is this important? It's part of Jesus' purpose in salvation. Let me just say this about it. Jesus has intended to not just save you from your sins, but from the oppression of spiritual forces of power that were meant to be your servants in the development of the world, that they have overstepped their bounds. We have given them legal right to exercise authority, and Jesus is rescuing you from their power. Why is this important for us to be able to look forward and to see the things that are taking place in our lives? Because it is the purpose of Jesus to rescue you from them. Let me do the second one, is this. It is a part of restoring our identity. Studies have been shown, more recently especially, that when we function in the realm that we're called to function in, we're happier as people. It's one of the reasons why the, the class, the Omega class, Becoming Yourself. Angela Miller will be teaching, ladies. Becoming Yourself. Because who we were meant to be is deeply satisfying to us. It's the way God meant us to be. And when you are fighting and withstanding the powers, and you're drawing boundaries and saying no to things in your life that are seeking to exercise control and dominance, and you are taking back ground yourself, and you are fighting because it's really hard then you are stepping into the restoration of your identity as a person and who you were made to be, and you will find greater joy. And then the third one is this. Why is this important? It's a part of a radical and powerful life. I was thinking about this. The culture often leads the church. It did in slavery. It did in women's suffrage. That a woman should be able to vote along with a man. The culture led this, not the church. And yet you and I, you and I are given the spirit of God. You and I are given the insight that there are powers in the earth. That there's deceit and deception taking place. That there's oppression. And we are called to be the ones who look into the world. And to look into our worlds that affect us and say, this isn't right. There's something going on here. I don't understand it. I don't know it. But this we need to stand against. That's your inheritance. That's my inheritance as Christians. 
to be on the leading edge of looking into the world for the recovery of the way it was meant to be. That's our calling. And when we are willing to fight for this and to recognize that there are powers seeking to exercise dominion over us in our world and willing to even be a little crazy about things as to what you may fight against, that you may actually dare to go an entire weekend without your cell phone, especially if you have grown kids. They can get a hold of you if you have to. They really can, but we don't believe it. The audacity to go a weekend without the television on. Could we dare to make such steps? And I believe that is something that will awaken us to a radical and more powerful life. And so the last thing is this. Then how do we withstand the powers? Well, let's ask the worship team to come forward. Because we're going to sing center. That Jesus is the center. Because how are we then to withstand the powers? After the first service, somebody jokingly said to me, if you could give me, if you could just send over to me a pill or a shot for the how-to, because I'd like to just take it because I don't just really know how to overcome this. There is no pill and there is no shot. Let me say these three things. First, in weak prepositions, there's a great verse in 1 Thessalonians. You turned from idols to serve the living God. From to, those are prepositions. Anything an ant can do to a log, remember? Preposition. They're little words. Weak words, words of no emphasis. You turn from God, I mean from idols, to serve the living God. If you listen to this and you say, oh, I'm just going to, I'm not going to, I'm going I'm to quit watching television. If you don't, if you only turn from, you haven't gained anything. You haven't gained anything. If you say, well, I'm just going to turn to God and I think the rest will take care of itself, you'll just be drugged up and think I'm a great Christian worshiper and you'll be numb God. It's turning from to. And so how do you withstand the powers? The first part is this. It is really, really hard, but you're going to have to take a risk if you think there's anything here. If you think there's anything significant here. If you think you have any sense of calling to be contrary to the forces at play in this world, in our world, that there is something numbing and dulling your senses. If you think you have anything to do here, you're going to have to simply take a big risk and do something that's going to be really, really, really hard. Expect withdrawals. Expect anxiety. Expect to not know what to do with your time. Because we have so accustomed ourselves to consuming. The second is in borrowed, and here's a big word you can write down, panoply, because it's a P. I've got proposition, preposition, panoply, and then prayer. Panoply is just the Greek word for full armor. It's the first in Ephesians, put on the full armor of God, the resplendent, glorious armor of God. I think the main purpose there isn't to talk about the different pieces and what you do with different pieces. The main purpose is to say, God has given you a victory. See, armor isn't just for the battle part. Armor you put on before the battle in part to intimidate your foe. Armor is for the battle when there's actually swords clashing, but armor is also for the victory after it. It's the parade uniform that you go in resplendent victory and glory. And I think what Ephesians 6 is talking about when it's saying put on the the panoply, the full armor, the resplendent armor of God, there's a little bit having to do with the pieces, but more important than that is to say, I have given you victory. The powers are not all powerful. They're even less powerful than the wind and the rain and the fire and you have managed as a people to subdue them. 
these massive forces that could destroy you and yet we subdue them. So similarly, you are called to exercise your authority and victory in Jesus to withstand the powers. That's what the armor is meant to say to you. You have victory. If there's a skirmish, you can fight it. Stand up tall. Stand up proud. You have been declared victorious in Jesus. He put them to shame already. The ones that tell you you can't make it without TV, they're lying to you. He put them to shame already. And then the last is this. How do we withstand the powers in pestering prayer? In pestering, dependent prayer. One of the stories about prayer, it's in the Ephesians about wrestling with the with the spiritual forces, but there's another story Jesus says. Is he actually says, I want you to bug God. I want you to bug him. I want you to keep asking. I want you to bother him. I want you to pester him. I want you to persist and ask him over and over. In fact, the Ephesians passage says, praying all kinds of prayers. And praying all kinds of prayers, it says. Pray all kinds of prayers. Become a whining prayer, for goodness sakes. Asking God, would you help me to see the things that are exercising dominion in my life? Would you help me to make the risky choices because I don't want to be dull anymore. I don't want to be pale and anemic as a Christian. I want a sense of vibrancy. I want a sense of aliveness. I want a sense of being called to life by the resurrection of Jesus. And as we stand on the brink of another year, this is the time to assess your life. This is a break that God has given you to say, what is he doing with you? Where are you going? What are the long paths that you're on? And I'd suggest one of them is this, that in realizing the victory of Jesus, you're called to withstand the powers in the big things taking place in your world to be daring and courageous because there's a great victory. And so that's our prayer as we sing, center. I want to ask you to stand because we sing and say, you're Jesus, the center of life for me. Let's stand and worship again.